Hi, this is Allison Anderson with Integra Builders out of Chicago, and you are listening to The Contracting Handbook with Mike Kenoki. It's okay if they're surprised and dismayed by that number. What's not okay is if they have a visceral reaction towards me for saying it. I think the most important mistake that builders make is taking on the client's emotions. I've really just found that being sociopathic as the builder is the best thing I can do for them. Be consistent and let them take their emotions out to brunch with their friends on the weekends. And to the contractor and being like, shouldn't you know that we need shop drawings? Didn't you know that the plumber needs a shop drawing? Didn't you know that like the electrician's going to need to know exactly where all this stuff is? Didn't you know that you didn't actually have this info and you needed a lot from us? Don't let what you do change who you are. The builder is there for bad news. That's our job. We are bad news bear. You just have to get really good at it. The first is the occupational hazard. Numbers guys, the worst. Mm. Hedge fund owners, stock traders, financial advisors, people who work in commodities are the worst. The second, of course, is the pauper. People who are constantly trying to convince us that they're broke. The third one, which I think is the most dangerous, is the ignoramus, Mm -hmm. which is these people have no idea what's going on. Like these are the clients, like the DocuSign goes out and it's signed Mm -hmm. immediately. They can't wait to get started. They are cookies for the trades. They issue that deposit. They're answering questions. They're approving change orders. Like everything is great. Energy is really high. Everything is fabulous until it's not. What's the fourth type of person? The entitled. (laughs) Okay, that guy was actually all four of them. (laughs) Yeah, they do. They mix and match. Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook Podcast, everybody. My next guest is the recipient of the National Association for Remodeling Industries Best Builder Award 2023 Chicago. She's been featured in Forbes magazine. If she were a construction referee, there would be a red flag thrown on nearly every play. She has a formidable eye for detail. When things imploded in 2013, she rose from the wreckage better and stronger and now can be seen laughing when things go sideways on a project nearing the finish line on her social media. Let's find out how she's learned to laugh in the face of adversity. Please welcome my next guest, owner and operator of Integro Builders out of the greater Chicago area, Allie Anderson. How are you today? Welcome. Good. How are you doing? Doing great. Excited to be here. Great. I'm excited to, have, great, excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining on a Monday, no less. I'll try, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um. For reference, the audience, what I was trying to illustrate, what I meant about laughing in the face of adversity, uh, in a recent social post, uh, you were sitting on the lower bunk of what might be a kid's bed and in a new custom home, and the ladders were supposed to be white, but they were black. (laughs) You can kind of take over from here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's... In the social media atmosphere where there are so many custom builders across the country and everyone's trying to be an influencer and everybody's trying to show off what they're doing, I think 
it's really important to remind clients and like the world that no matter what, no matter how sophisticated we get or how fancy we are, at the end of the day, we're still builders and it's still construction and it just fights you every day of the week. You know, it does <laughs> it's just like, it I just does. feel like we're always one beer short of a six pack. No, how, no matter how good we get, you know, yeah. <laughs> It is. You can improve. You can improve and get better and better all you want, but but stuff still shows up wrong. Mis yeah. Miscommunications are endless. Yeah. 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 So and the more that, complicated the projects get, the easier it is to happen. You know, the more people that are involved, the more people there are to manage. Right. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And yeah, and that final five percent of the project, that brutal. punch list. Yeah, it's brutal. Mm -hmm. It's it's tricky. And yeah. I would say it's it's the hardest part of the project. The the last month of a project, like actually getting a project ready for move-in, for occupancy, is the hardest part. And it is so intense. And I think as the builder, it's part of our project management style to really put on the intensity in that last month. And so we have all the trades coming back. You know, and it's just like mm -hmm. organized mm -hmm. chaos at all times. But I just find like if you there's no way to calmly finish because like if you don't have that intensity with the trades and they're not feeling like, OK, we have to get this done. It's like there's always going to be a punch list forever. And I see other builders deal with that all the time where it's like they're in a perpetual punch list. Like they, they're not they're never actually finishing a project. And I completely understand how that happens. Absolutely. You know, so for us, we get really, really regimented. Um, but I will actually like whenever we're finishing a project, I usually will clear the last three weeks of every project. I'll clear my schedule for it just to handle it um, and to deal with the emotions of the clients, too, because that's always that's a weird one I learned about seven years ago, which is that no matter how great the client is, everyone loses their mind that last three weeks. It's like the same. It's like the separation anxiety happening yeah it's a it's a tricky part of the project to navigate and i liked how you called it organized chaos i call general contracting controlling chaos trying to control chaos yeah uh often and and it's also that that final push you're also self-critical and and it's it's hard to keep that you got to stay so motivated so on top because the the details that you're ironing out are tiny there's just yeah so many of them and they involve exactly every single trade it's not the phase anymore you know when you're in when you're in rough it when you're in rough in stages it's just like go rough stuff in no big deal inspect walk through everything's cool but the final final phew. yeah and everyone has an opinion at final right because oh, like yeah. no one could visualize anything up until this point and so i'm always like it's hard as i think as a builder you know, it's like when you have the architect designer clients coming in and they have those blue tapes everywhere, or they're like bringing stuff up. It's like your initial reaction is like this visceral reaction. Like we are it working is. so hard, you know, <laughs> but then it's like you, but then it's like, you have to step back and it's like, no, this is exactly the right time to tell me while I have everybody here is exactly the right time. Yeah. Just, I am constantly in this like state of anxiety with myself, you know, where I'm like, shut up, Allie. It's good. They're being good. Everyone's being good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, but for us, it's like, oh, just leave us alone, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I like that. You're, it is super important to have them tell you everything right then, because some people don't. 
they right. they just they put it off and you're done and two weeks later they're like oh hey or a month later like oh hey there's this thing and you're like oh okay right. and all the momentum awesome. is gone and yeah. and all the and more importantly all the momentum from the trades are gone right you know they're that's the, the painful thing. thing yeah it is yeah and and you got to manage it for your trades because they got to they got to be going full steam all the time. They're in so many different places. It's a really different ball game for them. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not, they're in every driveway in town. There's it, so. Yeah. And we really like, it's really important to us to keep the trades efficient. That's also part of it too. Like the worst punch list for us, like, okay, everybody moves in, everybody moves in their furniture. So we always have our final paint touch-ups after they move in because you know, the movers ding everything and whatever. Um, but I try and consolidate that punch list, like to have someone come like a month later after you think you've gone through everything, mm -hmm. it starts adding up for the trades, you know, yeah. and that affects their pricing on the next project. And so like a big portion of our role as the builder is to control pricing. And the only way we can really control pricing is by controlling how we manage and, mm -hmm. you know, creating that understanding of what the trades can expect when they walk into one of Integra's projects. Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to do. And if they can expect consistency from you though, they're really happy to help you. They'll come, they'll deal with your punch list. They'll deal with the callbacks and they're they're It's no problem for them. It's when you're disorganized that they, they're, you get cast aside. Yeah. Um, so, oops. Okay. Little tumble there. Um, so I want to get into how you ended up as a builder. Mm -hmm. um, I know there was a project you were working on. And yeah. It went sideways. So what happened? Went, went way sideways, south, up, down, and around. Um, <laughs> so I was working a cushy corporate job, and uh, it was a great experience. And then I decided... Uh, in my naivety at 28 years old that, you know, corporate life maybe wasn't for me. I wanted more time for myself. I wanted more vacation time. I wanted to make more money and be less stressed, you know, and be in control. And I just laugh at that little girl <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and, uh, I decided at that time that I was going to leave my job and I was going to do what everyone else on HGTV was doing. And I was going to flip houses. Mm. And so I got a business partner and we decided that we were going to renovate this old house in a historic district of Chicago. And my business partner had a guy, right? Yeah. Had a guy. Had a guy. I had another mm -hmm. guy. And uh, he, he was quite a guy. And uh, he came and he gave us a price that was worth the paper it was written on. And uh, as we were going through the project, it was an unmitigated nightmare. Um, There's absolutely no organization there. The price was climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, there was no way to benchmark anything. There was this weird dynamic because my business partner and the contractor were friends. So any criticism of the contractor mm. seemed to be a criticism of my business partner. Mm. And, um, there were just a bunch of things where I just kept going back and to the contractor and being like, 
didn't shouldn't you know that we need shop drawings in order to do rough utility installs like didn't you know that the plumber needs a shop drawing for the cabinet so he knows where to put his drains like didn't you know that like the electrician's going to need to know exactly where all this stuff is like didn't you know that you didn't actually have this info and you needed a lot from us <laughs> you know in order to build this project and um it it was awful. Uh, and so we ended up spending more than double uh, the budget. And by the end of it, I was in litigation with my partner over all of mm. it. And um, I had really thought at that time, um, well, before the litigation, I had thought, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own, I'm going to do my own development. Uh, and I'm going to do it myself. Because I was like, you know what, I don't need by the by basically by the middle of the project that we were doing, I was like, you know what, I don't need to pay this guy to mess up my project. I can mess it up all by myself for less. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't need to be paying management of what? What is he managing? You know? Mm -hmm. And um, and there are parts of that argument that now are, are false, you know, like bringing in the trades themselves is a is a role. Uh, but I basically got my um, general contractor's license thinking that I was going to continue to be a developer. Uh, but then when I ended up in litigation with my business partner, I couldn't afford to do that. And so um, I then had, I was, you know, crying in my beer uh, to all of my friends about every, all these terrible things that were happening. And uh, I had one friend who was like, you know, I'm over budget on my project and early bids, you know, I don't trust any of these contractors. Like, would you, would you want to manage our house construction? And so I was like, sure. And, uh, and then I had another friend, uh, halfway through that project, do the same thing. Um, and he brought in an architect and I was like, oh, that's better. Like to have an architecture drawing where everyone is working off the mm. same thing and we can all benchmark something very technical. Yes. I was like, oh, this is great. And then I started working with better architects <laughs> than the first one. And the project started getting really, really interesting. And um, I just fell into this uh, niche of working with architects because I think the architectural experience with builders is very adversarial. And I'm not like for me, the architect is another advocate for the client. I'm advocating for the client, the architect's advocating for the client. And so the client feels more protected, but then I'm also more protected because ultimately the client doesn't have to believe me about anything. They have to believe their architect. And so yeah. if we can foster those relationships, it's so much more positive, you know, for, for everybody, because, you know, money's the thing. Money's the great communicator in construction. And um, if clients don't understand why they're paying money for something, you're going to have a really hard project. Yeah, I, I agree with the the communicating money, especially between you and the client, and the architect is super important. Now, wait, but, but rewinding a bit, when you started this project with your partner way back when, 2013, um, were you guys in the house doing some of the work too, or was it all you were you were hiring everything out from the get go? You're yeah, like, we were hiring. My... Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Back to what we were just talking about. Um, that, that getting in with an architect or a bill or a client when they are in the planning process with their architect, I think is super important because the architect doesn't tell the client 
what they think it's going to cost before you do. Because you're there to say what it's really going to cost as you go. Yeah. And, 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 I, and offer options. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think that uh, clients and architects uh, have a superpower, which is uh, optimism in the face of anything. <laughs> right? It's like... The structural engineer could come and be like, yeah, you know, we're going to have to knock this house down and like rebuild it new, you know, and, and somehow people will convince them, you know, everyone will convince themselves that like, maybe it's not a change order. I mean, maybe it'll be less because it'll be easier. Right. Or, um, mm. you know, it, and this happens all the time. And it's like the builder is there for bad news. That's our job. I mean, there's no way to change it. We are bad news bear. And I think the differentiator is it, you just have to get really good at it. Um, and I think that's the name of the game. I think that's why I get, people get burned out in construction so much, especially the builders, you know, because you're constantly in hard conversations. And moreover than that, those hard conversations are about money. And, um, and that's because no one else is, is communicating money. Uh, and frankly, I get surprised. I get surprised when on a lot of projects where there are architects that are doing projects over and over and over again. And it's like, come on, dude, like, you know what this costs. Like, why are you, why, you know? And, and if you don't, how, right? how can you not? Right. After all these years. Right. Yeah. It's like, stop looking at the project like, oh, I think it should cost this. I'm like, if I yeah. did that, of course, everything would cost under 500000 but it doesn't. It costs over a million. Like, I think it's ridiculous. It doesn't change the price, though. Right. You know? <laughs> like, right. it costs what it costs. And like look on the news, like look around. It's all getting more expensive, not less expensive. And nobody's happy about it. Builders aren't happy about it either. Subs aren't happy about it either. No one's rejoicing in the increased construction costs, you know, contrary to popular belief. No doubt. And yeah, we're, we're not, we're not sitting here trying to like overcharge or anything either. You're just going, okay, this is the real, this is the bottom line. And then you ask yourself, is it enough? Right. And that's the real danger, right? Because we're the ones that lock in. And it's like, and if I have to, you know, it's like if I have to change my pricing, especially after contract, it, it's very difficult to do apples to apples. If there's not a change in scope and you just have to arbitrarily increase your price. I mean, it's really hard to do and like maintain any type of relationship. You know, I just hate that. I hate it when um, like, when the team makes me feel like I'm trying to pull one over on them, you know, and it's like, Hey, like, I don't want to sit here in this conversation and do this. Like, I wish I could hold the original pricing. And by the way, I'm not taking this 80 grand and like putting it in my pocket. <laughs> you know, our margins are so small in construction, unbelievably small. And it's like, look, there isn't a builder alive who doesn't do what they do because they have a passion for it because anybody could pretty much do anything else and make more money <laughs> doing what we're doing. You know, like um, I just think it's, it's just crazy, you know, and, and people just get so confused because it, the number is so big and it's like, but that's revenue. Like we're buying things with that money. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a very small percentage, very less than 20% that's coming to us. Yeah, 20% be really good these days. Oh, what a dream. Yeah. Before taxes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> now we're talking. You're getting the Monday attitude yeah. from me. Yeah. You're just. 
going into going into the week realistic. Yeah. <laughs> got to got to keep it real. We we've been through that whole false uh giving ourselves false ideas about the industry. So what did you learn about communicating with clients? Like I don't know, two or three things when you were working with this original person that you absolutely use now. Yeah, so I mean, I have to say like the primary thing that I took from the original the original contractor where I was like this is totally unacceptable was really just with a basic facilitation and foresight. Um, I think just having a process of, okay, these are the things that are going to happen on the project and these are where we are going to need you. So for example, um, any cabinet, all cabinetry, right? Anything that's being custom fabricated, we have to have a shop drawing for it so that we can do our rough installations. Um, for us on projects now, we pretty much require that all finishes are specified prior to construction. Um, it's very rare that we will allow finished specifications to be chosen while we're under construction, just because we are not putting finishes on the house. We are building the house to the finishes. And there's right. simply no way to achieve a custom build if you're not custom building. So um, I would say foresight and, and not having that rush, like to me, the first contract, it was like, why did we rush to get started? Like you weren't ready to start, you know, like I know that we were putting pressure on you and clients put pressure on me too, but it's just like, you're not ready. You're not ready, you know, and it's going to be really, really painful and stressful for you to be choosing this while we're going, because I'm going to need it yesterday. Mm. You know? Yes. Uh, uh, yes. That, I love this. And that, that, expectation management, especially when you're, let's go back to what you're just saying about price. If people haven't chosen everything and they've been given your, your number for the box, for the unit, you know, to paint a drywall and they still have to choose finishes. They don't realize that that's another 20 or 30% on top of what it's already going to cost. They don't re even if you say it, they don't know it until they've done the research and ordered. Yeah. Right. At, and, and also, you know, a lot of people, again, are very optimistic in the beginning. I mean, mm -hmm. if I had $1,000 for every time I had clients say, oh, we, we're, we're going to spend $20,000 on appliances, and it was like a $50,000 order, I mean, I could go on vacation. It happens all the time because the reality is once you're spent, construction is expensive, and it's like once you're spending a certain amount of money, nothing doesn't feel worth it. You know, it's like... Once you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, it seems silly to compromise on $1,200 worth of accessories and towel bars and toilet roll holders. It doesn't seem fair to not spend an extra 10 grand on your appliances or an extra five grand on your doors. But you go 10, 5, 15, 2, 3, 2, and then boom, you're at another 50 grand, mm -hmm. you know, real quick. And it happens fast. Um, and this is what this is what people like don't realize. And it's just, you know, construction is it's a series of commodities that add up to a final number. And, you know, especially for the clients and that look at a bid and just go straight to the bottom and look at the bottom number. It's like, well, you're always going to be sticker shock doing that. But if you go line by line, trade by trade, it's just a series of reasonable prices that add up to a big number. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know? 
that's why I walk my clients through. I read it to them basically before we sign. So they understand. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I read the notes in the contract, the contract language as well. So they know they can't text me at midnight. They can't just call me anytime. You know, Bingo. I have, I have, I have to have a life. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, the biggest, the biggest change in me personally is when I first started my company and I was working with that guy, I mean, you know, I thought he was a degenerate, you know, I mm -hmm. thought he was like a low life and I generally felt like builders, you know, all these stories I was hearing from my friends and whatever, I thought that the builders were the bad guys and that the industry needed to be changed because contractors were bad people because they were pulling one over on people and they didn't have specs and they were unsophisticated. And having done this over the years, I've realized that for the most part, builders are very nice people who have been treated very badly on projects. And that has made them the way that they are on projects. And I completely understand that now. And it really became, I would say about five years in, a matter of survival on how to manage clients just for that reason. Like figuring out why client, why are, why are they acting like this? Why are they doing like this? I feel like I'm doing the same thing from beginning to end of the project and the clients are going like this, you know, and like, um, and so the big game changer for us was about five years ago where I, where I started really focusing on our project management and really focusing on the psychology of mm -hmm. the clients and trying to figure out like, why are you doing that? Like, what is it you're trying to communicate to me indirectly? You know, like, what are we really talking about here? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, there's a lot to the psychology and I agree. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time trying to dissect my clients, the tough ones, you know, you know, you have someone who's disguised themselves as a rational human being. They're funny. They're seemingly kind and generous. When you meet them, they have baked goods for your crew every day. They love you. They're praising you. And all of a sudden they demand that you deduct X amount of dollars because they read something because they're in a bad mood or something. And they go to that contract and say, this was wrong from the start. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what do you do? Yeah. What, what would you do if someone did that to you? They say, oh, no way. I'm not paying 15,000 for this now, but it's, it was signed a month and a half ago. Yeah. I would very rarely give in to anything like that. I, almost. I don't know that I ever really have. I mean, little things here and there, it just sort of depends on the context of what's, of what's going on. Um, I think. A lot of that is about laying groundwork in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to, you know, early days, it's like we're hungry for work. I'm trying to build the business. And, you know, I was a real yes person. It's like, yeah, we can do that. Yes, we can do that. And, you know, no problem this, no problem that. And now when I'm in early discussions with clients, it's as much an interview for them as it is an interview of me. And I really use our contract um, as a conversation starter. And it's like, mm -hmm. let's talk through the rules of play, you know, mm -hmm. because the contract is really there to show everything that could go wrong. Uh, and it's always to me really interesting 
uh, when the clients actually do the due diligence to look at the contract and the fine print. That's always a really good sign it, it is. <laughs> for me. When they, when, they, when they actually read it and ask questions instead of yeah. just signing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's really important, especially in the beginning. I always try in those first conversations when I meet people to have a hard conversation. And usually it's schedule and budget, right? So like people will come to me and they'll be like, oh, we want to do a two flat conversion, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, and I'll be like, okay, great. So, you know, renovation costs in Chicago are 250 to 350 a square foot. If you're talking about a two flat, it's 1100 square feet, two floors, plus your basement, you're going to be about 1.1 million. Is that your budget? You know, and see how they react. It's okay. Yeah. If that's not their budget, it's okay if they're surprised and dismayed by that number. What's not okay is if they have a visceral reaction towards me for saying it. Right. You know, or they have a, or they start arguing with each other during the meeting. That's a huge red flag, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, and are you pummeling with me with questions or are you asking me questions? You know, are you, um, are you interested in trying to understand Or are you beating to your own drum and trying to talk down to me? You know, these are the things I feel like the biggest game changer, the only way to stop having clients who devalue my time and devalue my trade as the builder and general contractor is to suss them out in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, when someone has a visceral reaction to me, I mean, my mantra now is everyone is not my client. Everyone is not your client. If, if I feel anything like that, no way. It's Mm -hmm. a polite back. It's a, how do I get out of this situation? Back out slowly, be polite. And hopefully they'll never call again. Yeah. I had, you have have to avoid those people. hundred percent. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I had a client last year where I backed out of the project. It was over a million dollars, but I was like, this is not going to work. Like my profit margin is less than the litigation costs when this goes south. And, um, you know, it was like, I backed out, I was polite and, um, that, you know, they slandered me for like a year <laughs> after that. I kept like hearing these stories, like from around, cause it's small, you know, it's like Chicago is like a big, small town, uh, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was just like, geez, you know, like, thank Thank goodness (laughs) I didn't do that project. I was like, good job. Good job, Allie. That was, that was painful to do way back when, but you know, okay. Can you, can you imagine the slander if you had worked for them? Right. I mean, they would, it would have been a miserable experience. Right. Because we've all had those. Yeah. And you just can't, it's like the job is hard enough. Uh Doing the project is hard enough. You know, managing all these crews is hard enough. And, uh, you know, you don't need all the extra drama on top of it. You don't because that when that energy gets to you and you start getting down because of the client, it starts to, it starts to go into everybody that's on the project. They all start to feel it. They can see. And, and when you're happy on the project in your subs are happy too. Everybody's like proud, marching forward, getting stuff done and, and, and passion. You know, everybody loves it. Yeah. Well, and if everybody feels like they may get yelled at for something that they do, they're mm-hmm. not going to move very quickly very forward, not because they're lazy, not because they're trying to drag their feet, but because they're afraid, you know, like, and you don't want people afraid to work 
you know, and um, I think it's, mm. I think the most important mistake that builders make um, and contractors in general is especially female contractors or builders in the industry is taking on the client's emotions. I think the mo the best thing that a builder can be to their client is their builder. You know, it's like your clients are, they're probably upset about money. They're probably having marital issues because, you know, construction is like the third top reason for divorce in the U.S. or something like that. You know, there's a lot of stress in their personal life. They're not at, for our projects, they have to move out. Like they're not at home. They're spending a lot of money. It's personal money. It's uh, probably a significant portion of their savings. Um, they're having to come to, if they're married, they're having to come to consensus on every little thing with that project. And that is not a normal marital exercise to have to right. come to consensus on a cabinet pole or a door hinge, right? And they have their own lives. They might have kids. They might have parents. They have all these other things that are at play. And I've really just found that being sociopathic as the builder is the best thing I can do for them. Because if I'm anything else, they get confused and it's harder on them. Because at some point you have to be the builder and it's harder on them if you go back and forth, you know, it's like, just be consistent and let them take their emotions out to brunch with their friends on the weekends, you know, but yeah, it is very interesting. We do take on, maybe it's because we're empaths. A lot of builders are empaths. I definitely absorb a lot of people's emotions around me and I, realized when I started digging in the psychology of it all that I had to back that off. I had to back out of doing that at all and say what I need to say and say nothing else. Cause it's also really easy to continue talking, to say something and then, and then start backpedaling cause they're kind of processing and you're not really getting anywhere. And um, it's also like, they, I don't know how you to, are like when you go to meetings or do you like prep for your meeting mentally when you're going into it? Absolutely. I actually, especially with hard clients, um, I, I kind of have an outline, you know, I, I have notes. Um, my first meeting with any client, I've definitely considered everything that's been in our emails. Uh, I prep certain questions because I want to feel them out on certain, I want to definitely get a good idea of who they are. Cause even if they seem good on paper, I want to know if they're going to be easy to work with. I want easy to work with. I want to work with a partner. I want to work with someone who, who is excited to build and, and, and we do it together. Yeah. Um, I, it, the, the really needy clients are not my, they're not the best for me because they, they, they do put their emotions on you and they expect you to, they want something more. I don't know what it is. But they have their own social issues. They have their own issues. And a lot of that gets brought out on us because we're taking the money. It's like you said, it's a majority of life savings. And they're in a very stressful situation with their partner. So we're the fall guy. We're always the bad news person. Yeah. As much as we're smiling and 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 having a good time, we're just like, oh, hey, oh, you want this? Like, uh, I would say... I was a very much yes person. I am a yes person. But when they ask for something, I say, 
sure, let me get back to you and I'll tell you how much that's going to cost. And that's it. I just turn my back and keep going. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, huh? Oh, he's not just going to do this for free because he's there already. You know, well, everyone thinks old- our time is free, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I, I, I think, you know, to that point, um, one thing that I learned that's really changed the game is counterintuitive to what you would think. But um, I've just learned charge for everything because there is something weirdly mental about doing something for free that's devaluing to the client. And I think what happens and like what happened to me early on is like, I would not charge for this and I would not charge for that. And I would not charge for this. And especially when it came to site management fees, like the GC fee, like, okay, I'll do that. Okay. I'll do this. Okay. I'll do that. And then you get to that six change order and you're like, all right, that's it. I have to charge. I have to charge for this. And so then you put that site management fee in there and suddenly it feels like a punishment Mm. to the client and it becomes an issue. Whereas now it's like there's site management attached to every change order and you do it on every change order every time. And it's better for the clients because it's a quid pro quo. They know that if they want something more, it's going to cost more. And it should cost more because it's costing us more. (laughs) It's not free. You know, and, and I just found that once I started charging consistently, things really got better and I was shocked by it. But, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because the, the best thing you can be for your clients is consistent and consistency communicates and money communicates. And it's like, if they want to make decisions and they want to make changes on the project, that's great, but they don't have to be making decisions about the project, not thinking that it, thinking that it might be free, that adds a whole other dynamic and stress and anxiety for them to the whole process. Like, oh, is she going to come back with a change order for this or not? And then, then they're sort of in this gambling mentality, you know. And yes. um, yeah, so it, you know, construction is a weird emotional industry. <laughs> it is. Uh, I really like that. How you put that succinctly, though, and anybody who's listening who's not doing it. Start charging. I mean, you have to, I didn't, I wasn't consistent with my change orders at the beginning either. I was terrible. I told people that I was going to charge for change orders and I'd be like, oh, that's not a big deal. We'll just add it on. You know, we're going to charge you time materials, but not a change order fee. Mm -hmm. And the change order fee is, it doesn't, it, it might seem like a lot, but it's not. It's your time. You're just barely being compensated for it with that fee anyway. Yeah. And I think you fall into the trap as a builder of being like, well, you know, the tile guy's already here. I mean, he's already here. I mean, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm managing him. I don't need to charge a fee on that. I mean, he's going to charge to do that extra, you know, 25 square feet of tile, but like, I, you know, he's already here and I'm already managing him. And it's like, no, he's here. You had to communicate. You had to document, you had to get an approval. You had to coordinate another delivery and you had to invoice the client and write up the change order. Mm-hmm. Like, if you really think about every change order, there, there's no change order that took you less than three hours at any time. I don't care if it was $5. It took you three hours. And like, what's your time worth? Right. And people don't realize that we're displacing our schedules all the time for them to deal with this stuff. Right. 
your schedule, I'm sure your Monday, I'm sure your week looks packed. You might have left some gaps, so you have some buffer, right? That's the yeah. best we can do. Yeah. But my but, New Year's resolution this year was to work 50 hours a week. How's and it it's going? been it it's hard, but it's going good. But I've been really diligent about it. So I'm basically like, okay, I'm gonna work seven to five or I'm gonna work eight to six. And it has happened a couple of times where it's like it was six o'clock and I'm like if I work another hour, I could get so much more done, you know, but then I was like, nope, nope, like stop. Like if you're not getting it done, then I guess you're going to have to find out how to hire somebody. <laughs> you know, that's like my thing because the burnout is real, you know, it is. And, and that extra hour sometimes isn't a very productive one. It's if you slept, you could have got that done in like 15 minutes, but it took an hour the night before. Yeah. Cause you're like, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So are you t is there a day off where you're just shutting out, shutting everything out and, and staying offline? So I had, I unsync my phone nights and weekends from mm. email, from, uh, I mean, phone, everyone has my phone number, but I do, I do tell clients in our kickoff email, uh, you have everyone's personal phone numbers. Don't abuse it. You know, please don't text us, uh, or call us like after hours, unless there's an emergency, and by the way, this is what an emergency is. Uh, it's water or fire, you know, yeah. um, other than that, like, please send an email. You can email us nights and weekends, but don't text or call. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, my opinion is there's nothing I can resolve between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. in construction. There's nothing yeah. I can do. So why be stressed about it? And, you know, why learn about it right before I'm about to go to bed or when I'm trying to have a, oh, a cocktail with my husband? You know, yeah. like why why put that stress on yourself? Because if I read that email at 6 a.m., I might have it resolved in 15 minutes in one phone call, you know? Um, right. And if you do, if you send this to me at 930, I'm not going to sleep an extra right. hour because I'm going to start Right. Or out. at all, because you're going to, you yeah. know, I'm, I get insomnia when I get stressed. I, I do yeah. that 2 a.m. wake up yeah. and everything is a catastrophe. The business is going under. We're never going to complete the project. You know, I'm yeah. like super like anxiety middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> anxiety driven. I, I, I tell my clients not to text me at all unless it's an emergency. I was like, this is for me and my subs. You should see what my phone looks like during the day. I if if you text me, it just gets mixed and lost. Like stick with our email threads. You have a question about this, put it in there. And as far as the emergency emergency stuff goes, I say yeah, after 7 p.m. nothing unless it's yeah, fire or water. And but in those initial um conversations I say think about it this way. If you have a question at the end of the day, think about it for the night. And in the morning, you might have answered it yourself, or you might even have a better, broader set of questions because you've actually processed that question a little further. Yeah. And and it makes for a better dialogue. And I'm a morning person. So if you talk to me at night, I'll say I could say something stupid. It might not, <laughs> it might not make any sense at all. I might be drunk, which yeah. is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah. Um So what do you, what do you, do you, do you take the calls or is it someone else dealing with the clients in the first initial contact? 
And the initial, so yeah, I'm the only sales um, BD person for the company. Uh-huh. So, you know, I mean, our, for the most part, um, it's pretty rare actually that I'll hear directly from a homeowner. For the most part, our work is referred by architects. Okay. So um, that was a game changer for our business um, because, you know, the architects have already vetted the clients and mm-hmm. they've usually already established a relationship with them. So, and then the clients are more amenable because they've been referred, you know, so we've been lucky enough where the clients have interviewed multiple architects and those multiple architects have referred us. So normally by the time we come to the table, we've already been referred two or three times um, to the same client. So, yeah, so that's really, that's really great. Um, I'm really proud of that. I, I really appreciate when the clients come from an architect and they're kind of, they're kind of already sold on you. You don't have to, it's just right into a dialogue, mm-hmm. a, a, like a very um, constructive dialogue. Yeah. And, and we, I think the, you know, like, I, <laughs> I think the referral that always comes is like, so Allie's going to give you a real number, like mm. a real, no- you know, <laughs> Like, (laughs) that's how it used to be in the beginning. And now that's sort of like tapered off. So, you know, and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, with, with the architect, you know, and it's like, we've built these relationships. And now the architects know that, you know, our process is better. Like, our process is better. Bad news first. Bad news there. It's easier to come down than to go up. But yeah, when we give a ballpark bid, which is the only thing we'll give without a, a pre-con agreement is mm-hmm. I'll give them a ballpark. Um, and it's as detailed as our final bid, uh, but it's just a guesstimate, you know, based on, based on our projects. And it's like, I always shoot high. I always tell everybody, I'm like, I'm always shooting high because it's easier to come down than it is to go up. But like things could happen on your project. Like, you know, maybe if there was a catastrophe on another project, I'm not going to put that price in. But if I'm consistently seeing this is an area where things go down in a negative way on your pro- on projects, then yeah, I'm going to include that pricing in your ballpark. And if it doesn't happen to you, I mean, great, you know. Um, or if we get through the design process and we don't end up having to do that, if you know the the Department of Buildings doesn't make us do it, great, you know. Um, but I think I think for the relationships that we have with architects and the architects that know our style. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, it's better all around where it's like, Hey, our bid might be 1.1. Another builder might be at 900, but at the end of the day, everyone gets to my price. The question is how and when not if, you know, and it's like, would you yeah. rather know in the beginning or the end? Cause if you know, in the beginning, you're going to have a better, a better final product in the end. I've personally shied away from ballparking because of a few instances where, I mean, at first it was, they said, Oh, you said, but you said it was going to be this. And I'd say, well, in the contract, it doesn't say that I might've said it on the phone when I, before I knew you and before I saw your house, but, mm-hmm. but what happened later was someone would say, but you said this and they would make up a number that I had never said. And so, and I, and I had given them a ballpark but it was, it was verbal and it was not. And they remembered it however they wanted to, whatever that was, whether it's manipulation or misremembering. Uh-huh. Well, and just, everyone remembers a number. Me. 
right? right. Like that's yeah. the thing. Like, and and I think and like HGTV. I mean, my goodness, you know they they go on those shows and they have the contractors that show up and they're throwing numbers out from their clipboard, you know, on the first day. Yeah. And it's like, that's not real. That is entertainment. Like that's not real. And, you know, like I don't do ballparks over the phone. So for us, our process is um, I will give a ballpark based on a schematic design from the architect. And then they have to sign a pre-construction agreement and that ballpark bid is attached to it. Um, and there is contractual language, of course, that says like, this is a guesstimate. It's not based on the subs. It's not whatever, uh, you know, it's not, this is not a bid. This is an idea, a general range of where your project is going to land. Um, but the pre-construction service agreement allows me to come in early in design and start doing pricing iterations and billing for my time as I'm doing it. But I had, when I started doing the pre-construction agreement, I had thought that I was going to lose work over it. And I started gaining work over it. I mean, the clients, they loved it because it filled the gap. It filled the gap between paying their architect for all these drawings and hiring the builder. Mm -hmm. And it made the whole process streamlined. But I mean, I'm in pre-con all the time. And there's just no way that an architect can look at a project the way you and I look at a project. We're mm -hmm. in 3D, they're in 2D, you know, and they may want that duct to go run through here. And it's like, well, if you want that duct to run through there, you're going to have to do X, Y, Z, D, and F. And by the way, that's going to suck. Yeah. You know. 100%. And, Red flag. What are you thinking? Right. What are you thinking? <laughs> what are you thinking? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, uh, we know the people doing it too. We know what it's going to take. We know what they're going to say when they see the drawing and they're like, what is he thinking? Right. <laughs> this is going to take this much more time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And you really need it. And, um, you know, and for the clients too, you know, when it's like, you know, for, for us in the pre-con agreement, it's like, I'm being paid for my time. And I, I've never had a client, I shouldn't say never. For the most part, I I do not have clients, even if their project doesn't move forward because of budget in the end. Like for the most part, those clients send me like handwritten notes with the check that are like, thank you so much for everything and are like grateful mm. that they didn't get in way over their head, you know, mm -hmm. on what they wanted to do or just mm -hmm. realize that like, you know, if we're not going to have everything we want, we don't want to spend all this money. And it's like, I would... To me, that's worth it because I don't want to be in the middle of a project where someone's spending all their money and not getting everything they want. Absolutely. Yes, I am with that. And and to come back to what you were saying a minute ago about the, the builder who's at 900 and you're at 1.1 and you say, you will be at 1.1. Like you can come back and check with me in a year and what your experience was. And I've had that happen here. I'm not in those budgets for the houses I build, but people say, oh, so-and-so said they can, they can build this house for, you know, X amount of square foot. I'm like, not today. Not there's as impossible in this town. I live here. Right. I know who's going to work on it. Yeah. You know, and, 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 I, and it's good. That's a good way to weed a client out. If they if they can't hear you saying, 
that honestly, this is what you're going to be at eventually. So you can either have an honest conversation now about it, or you can fight for that 200 grand later. Um, but if they walk away, you're better off, right? It's just you're weeding them out by yeah. by staying honest from the get go. Well, I think the I think the easy way to get around that too, um, which I do, which I'm, you know, maybe people find obnoxious, and I don't care. But uh, you know, as I'm just like, you know, you always get the clients, and they're like, they're like, well, we wanted to renovate, you know, we wanted to renovate for you know five hundred thousand dollars, and it's like, okay, so you bought your house for for three fifty. Right. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, uh-huh. And have you tried to buy a similar house in your neighborhood for what you want? Have you looked at the real estate in your area? And, you right. know, they might say, yeah, I'll be like, are any of those houses 850? Right. Or are they 1.5? <laughs> you know, like, right. don't be mad right. at my number. Look around, you know, like, it's like, you know, I had a client once that was like, oh, you know, we want to build new construction. You know, our budget was 800,000. I was like, yeah. And they're like, but we weren't able to find anything. And I was like, mm hmm. Were you looking at houses that were 800,000? And they were like, yeah. I'm like, did they look like this? Like, and the drawings were, you know, like it was, it, it was a $1.8 million project. And they were like, no. I'm like, well, you know, and it's not that like, people are stupid. It's that they're naive. They're just not thinking of it. Like they are, they are naive. they're totally naive. They have no idea. They have you know? no idea. This is like where you're trying to control your, you, you want to like say what's going on in your internal dialogue. You just want to like say what's going on inside and you're tempering it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think helping understand the site, I think, you know, for me, I mean, I'm not going to be able to understand every client. But at least I'm, I do think I'm able to understand every significantly, like a client that's a problem. At least I think I've gotten a handle on who they are and why they're doing what they're doing and like how what they're doing can really be catastrophic for us, you know, and try and work around it. Um, and I think it's, it's really helped. You know, and basically like in my mind when I'm talking to people, I'm like, okay, there's four categories. Like, are you falling into any of them? And that doesn't necessarily mean I can't work with them, but it's a red flag. And if there are too many of them, I won't. Um, but if there are others, uh, you know, if there's like a few here or there, we can work around it, but it does affect how we manage the project. And it's also, you know, it's not like, these four characteristics, like these four types of clients means that these people are bad people. This is not generally how these people are in life. This is how they are in construction, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think that's always important, especially when I'm coaching my team where it's like, these are not bad people. These are bad actors in a tough situation. And like, don't look at them like they're bad people. It's going to change how you act towards them. You just have to look at them like they're babies, you know, and we're the babysitter and they're just like big adult fetuses walking around the project and like, just look at them like they're babies and you will be okay, you know, but if you look at them like they're full blown adults who are trying to screw you, naturally the dynamic is going to change. Like we really try and fight against that um, at all costs, you know. <laughs> That's very it's a very positive approach. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't always work. Like, let's face it, you know? Yeah. Well, we can only, we can only try. Yeah. You know, what are your, what are the four categories? Um, well, the first is the occupational hazard. So, uh, numbers guys, the worst hedge mm. fund owners, stock traders, oh. financial advisors, people who work in commodities are the worst because they really struggle with the fact that construction is not a commodity. They don't understand that. They think construction is a commodity because it's associated with real estate and because we're buying commodities. But it's like, we buy commodities, but the management of construction, what we do is not a commodity. It's a service, you know, and it's not apples to apples. And one builder compared to the next is not the same, you know, and um, one project that we may, you know, do really, really well at another builder could never accomplish and vice versa. I'm not a kitchen and bathroom modeler. I couldn't renovate one bathroom and have it go great. It would be a disaster, you know, but there are kitchen and bathroom modelers that could never do a gut renovation custom build. That would also be a disaster, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so numbers guys, and I say numbers guys, just because I've never had like a female client come to me and be like, I'm a numbers gal. It's like only been like men who've come to me and been like, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a numbers like, guy. Yeah. It's like, I'm hey. a numbers guy. And I'm like, oh. yeah, I'll tell you how it is. Hey. Yeah. I'm like, let me, for this? excuse okay. me while I like just drag myself across your driveway. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and so, and I think the biggest fundamental problem with, with finance people is just that any increase in price is a decrease in trust. And mm. so anytime there's a change order, it is like this visceral reaction and you have to prove yourself in the court of criminal law um, to prove that this change order exists and or that the change order pricing is correct. Because, you know, right. it's like once they sign that contract, there is no bid out. There is a huge amount of trust that you have to have with your builder because once we've started, our price is the price and we have lien rights on it. So it doesn't matter. You're locked in. You don't get to go. You could go to another contractor and be like, oh, I got a number for this electrical upgrade and this electrician said it's you know 3500 why are you charging me 4200 it's like it doesn't matter what the other guy is charging it's my price you know and once you start going down that rabbit hole with clients you're you're in you're in dire straits you know absolutely um and so i think you're just wishing you didn't know them you're wishing this never happened yeah and generally speaking um you know i think one good piece of advice from from my early litigation with my business partners, he did say something that has held true, which is when you start referencing your business contract, your contract is going down, like your project is going south. The second you start referencing the language of your contract, your project is in trouble. And I just feel like mm. when you start entering in those conversations where it's like, here, let's pick everything apart and then all of a sudden you, of course, what do we start doing? We start going back to that contract and being like, hey, this is how it works. Like, mm. and the second you start having to tell clients, like, this is not how it works. It's a different dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, yeah, numbers guys are hard. And then um, doctors are difficult. 
because they're kind of sociopaths just mm -hmm. by trade. I think they keep those emotions in. So I can't really read them. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, do you hate us? Do you love us? Are we doing okay? Interesting. You know, I almost never ask for references from doctors because like, I have no idea. I mean, I could deliver a beautiful home, but like, I have no idea, you know, and then you have like the busy business women. Um, we have a lot of clients like this where they're like really lovely clients. These women are running the world, right? They got mm -hmm. kids, they got a job, they're up early, they pay their bills, they answer emails. Um, and generally speaking, they just want you to, to build, um, except for the one afternoon, they're not busy. And then you are their sole focus and attention, mm. right? And those clients are really hard to manage from a time standpoint because they are paying their bills and they are managing their project and they are doing everything I've asked them to do. And I am obliged, I'm obligated to answer all their questions and give them the time of day. It's just that I don't ever know when that day is coming, you know? Um, and so, Sneak you know, attack. yeah, and it's kind of like, and in that afternoon, you suddenly have to rehash your entire project, like in that afternoon, you know, and it's like, so that, that can be really stressful. Um, so there are those, you know, the second, of course, is the pauper, you know, people who spend $250,000 renovating a kitchen and putting Ikea cabinet poles on the cabinets, you know, <laughs> Um, you know, kind of like people who are constantly trying to convince us that they're broke, mm. you know, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're broke or not. First of all, you're not. Second of all, you know, people who are broke don't renovate their houses. Take it some, from someone who used to be broke <laughs> in her early twenties, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but these are people that have an emotional attachment to their money. And so they are constantly trying to make their emotional issues with spending money our problem because we're taking the money, like to your point, like everything runs through us. And so the issue is that they want to put all this emotional negative energy about their anxiety about parting with their money on us. And they're constantly talking about the minutia, mm -hmm. even if it's like going back and forth about a change order. I mean, this stuff takes time, mm. you know, Does. and like writing these emails like back and forth and what they don't understand too. I mean, is that when I'm writing a change order, when I'm writing an email, I'm a believer, you know, email is for documentation. It's not for communication to me. So when you are writing me emails, first of all, I have to respond because I want a record that I responded, but then I have to think about how I'm responding and I have to be really careful about what I'm saying. So when you're just sort of like blithering, as my father would say, when you're just blithering and you're just trying to make yourself feel better because you really want that $3,000 stone, you know, and, but you just don't want to spend the money. I mean, you're wasting my time and you're wasting my energy. And it's like, every time I say, yes, I'm going to spend time on you. I'm not spending time on another client mm -hmm. or on a potential project. You know, we're a small business. Like our time is limited. It's not free, you know? And so I would say like the paupers, they tend to be a real um, profit suck when it comes to time management. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause you're not even, you're not even dealing with change orders with them. You're just dealing with blithering, like blithering. That's a blithering. <laughs> uh, there's a lot 
<laughs> we deal with a lot of Blytherin. Yeah. No doubt. And then, yeah. And then like the third one, which I think is the most dangerous is, um, I call it like the ignoramus, mm -hmm. which is these people have no idea what's going on. Like these are the clients, like to what we were talking about before, these are the clients that sign that contract immediately. Like the DocuSign goes out and it's signed mm. immediately. My contract's like 13 pages long, you know? Right. And it's like, these people, they can't wait to get started. They are, they have cookies for the trades. They issue that deposit. They're answering questions. They're approving change orders. Like everything is great. Energy is really high. Um, and everything is fabulous until it's not. Mm -hmm. And where it always goes south is when there's a change order that they don't understand and we have to enforce our contract, right? It's always like, well, that's not in here. And like, this is why. And this is a change order because of this. And these clients were always really confusing to me, but I think I figured it out, which is that the reason that they were so friendly and they were signing that contract and they issued that deposit and they're approving change orders is because they decided in the beginning that they trusted me and they trusted my company and they just blindly believed that I was going to do everything I said I was going to do from day one. And so suddenly when I'm communicating to them that things have changed and times have changed and the price has changed to them, it feels like a betrayal. Mm. And that's where that emotional response comes from because they don't want to pay attention to their contract and they don't want to pay attention to their drawings. They want me to do it for them and they don't want to pay any more money either, you know? And so, mm -hmm. and there are, and a lot of them I'm a, I do believe is like, they think if they're cool enough, I'm not going to charge. <laughs> it's like, no, everybody pays the same. If I don't charge you, I'm being disingenuous to my other clients. Yeah. And then you're yeah. going to tell your friends you can manipulate me. Right. Yeah. What? Okay. So I, I, before I gave an example about this person who had the great attitude, the baked goods, the money, all this stuff. Okay. So I'm listening to these three I've heard so far. So I had the money guy who was a false popper <laughs> and a false ignoramus. And when he, cause that was a true example of someone who, said, you know what, I, you, I'm, I want you to, I want you to duck 15,000 out of this contract. And I was like, no, absolutely not. On the phone, this was him and I, like, this is a showdown. And I was so sick of him. And I, all right, we have a meeting, you and you and your wife, because I, they all have, you always have to be all in the same room when it right. comes to the big conversations. Yep. We talked it through, but, but it was a, it was a, it was an absolute, manipulation like those are the hardest people yeah this guy knows money he knows construction but he just played yeah. dumb and it was yeah. brutal it was so hard on me it was hard on my crew because they could see that this guy was was on me and and he's super friendly his wife's amazing to the guys but it's all like after a while everybody's like wow this none of this is real mm -hmm. it sucked yeah. And it is like, and it's hard. And especially like, I don't think anybody except the builders understand what it takes to build. Like on an average project, we have 30 to 40 trades. 
that we have mm -hmm. that we have to manage, you know, and it's like most builders have trades that are very loyal. That means that we are managing these people and treating them with respect and usually eating costs if they have a change order that we didn't talk about before mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like we're just eating dirt all day long as the builder. We deal with the subs emotions, dealing with the vendors emotions. We deal with the design team's emotions. We deal with the client's emotions. And I think when the clients, it's one thing for the clients to be upset, but when a client is disingenuous, it just eats at your soul because we try so hard. We are managing so much and still trying to play it straight, you know? And I, I agree with you. Like that's just the worst. And, yeah. and the hardest thing in that situation too, I've been there a couple of times and it's like, I think the hardest thing is you always want to take a side and especially in a couple, right? Like a husband and wife team. And I think one of the hardest lessons in, in my manipulation experience was I thought the wife was the problem and then later learned that it was the husband. Mm. And then after that, I was like, I will never do that again. Like if, if the husband is saying something nasty to me, I have to assume that the wife is in agreement. It doesn't matter who wrote the email. It doesn't matter who said it. You two are one and the same to my team. And mm. it's hard for, especially my, um, my guys who run the job sites, the site foreman, you know, I have to remind them of that too, where it's like, Hey, don't, don't get close to that person. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know if it's them or not. Like everybody's one entity, you know? And, uh, yeah, that's hard. That's yeah. brutal. You know, it, you're right. You're true. You're right. We're eating dirt all day long. It, it, that, I love doing what I do, but we do, we eat a lot of dirt and we're just kissing ass. Yeah. You, it's just like some days it's so gross. You come home and you got to take a shower twice just to get it all off. Yeah. After what you've, after what you've been through trying to smooth over a situation with someone who's just messing with you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, and it's, and the, those, and it, it eats at you. Yeah. It's those, not something the, you can leave at the door. Yeah. You no, know, I'm like PTSD talking about it I, because it has, that was one client out of hundreds. And I got to say that 99% of my clients have been great. Maybe not in the first year, but in the second year. But as I've grown, they're great people and they love working with me. They call me. So, yeah. you know, that, that unicorn, that evil unicorn pops up every now and then. Yeah. Well, I, so, I think that our industry isn't, you know, you can't, you can't be a builder and not be passionate about what you do. We do what we do because we love it. And so when someone treats us like that, it is personal. I don't care what anybody says. There's no such thing as, as it's just business when you run a construction company and like people yeah. don't understand it. It is personal. Yeah. And us in residential, we are working on a couple's or single person's single most single greatest investment of their life. And it's where they, they live. It's where they're emotional. It's where they sleep. So it's, it's ultra personal. Yeah. In the residential realm. What's the fourth type of person? The entitled. Oh. <laughs> okay. That guy was actually all four of them. <laughs> yeah, they do. They mix and match. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, these are the oh, people that funny. are like, uh, you know, getting a nosebleed up on their high horse of theirs. And uh, these are the people that, 
sign your contract and then like feel like when they sign your contract that they own you mm. and that you mm. owe them more than what you've signed for. You know, they're the people that are trying to call you nights and weekends. They expect you to be readily available at all times, all hours of the day. Um, when they want something, they expect a response nearly immediately. Um, and they think that because they have a project of any scale, it really doesn't matter, but because they're spending any amount of money that everybody on the project should do them a favor, right? Everything should be economy of scale. Um, and usually entitled clients are, the, are, are a merger of one or more of the other ones. Um, and that, you know, they're hard to manage and they're people you really have to do hard stops with all the time. You know, and there's just no way, like once I know that there's a client that's got like a strong sense of entitlement, I know that at some point during the project, it's going to go to blows. Right. But I also know there's a lot of projects where you have really hard conversations in the middle. And as long as that final product is there, everyone's happy. The question is, how bad will the blow be? Mm. You know? And so for those people, I generally have a very long pre-con process where that goes on for months, you know, where I want to see like, how do you handle <laughs> things, you know? Yeah. And then if you find out that they're like this after you're under contract, it's like, you just like power through. Yeah. Yeah. Breathe deep. Yeah. Say as little as possible. Document, document everything every yes yeah um before we talked we were talking a little about project management versus project influencing and i'm a i'm an owner of a company i've never had a project manager i've had a foreman but he's he's bags on he's doing his thing and he's telling the other guys what to do and trying to keep track. And I'm, I'm the, I'm the PM really. I'm, I'm dealing with the subs. I'm keeping them happy. I'm keeping my clients happy to me. Good project management is my clients having the straight ahead construction experience. And that's why they come to me because they know that they'll, they'll get their product quality, blah, 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 all that stuff you say in construction, but they'll, it'll be enjoyable. It'll be a, it'll be a, a good process for them. So what do you, what do you think of that in terms of what you were talking about with project influence? Yeah, I think, um, I, I think there are a lot of builders that are in that scenario. Um, I am too still, you know, I'm, I still manage all pre-construction and I will step in on building construction where needed. Um, and I have a project manager um, that's managing internally of, you know, for the projects. I think when you're a construction project manager, it's not like being any other kind of manager because the critical thinking and analytical skills that you need in order to be successful are immense because we're constantly working in the gray, right? We're constantly dealing with an emotional issue a, a, uh, what do I want to say? Like tangible issue, you know? So we're dealing with an emotional issue. We're dealing with a tangible issue, but
but everything has to get built. Like nothing can ever really be set aside in construction because we actually have to build something. So we're constantly forced into getting people to make decisions and having to communicate really, really directly and clearly. And I see a lot. Um, I'm the president of um, NARI, which is the National Association of Modeling Industry for Greater Chicago. And we talk to a lot of builders. And what I see is when people are anti-confrontational and they're trying to manage construction, it's a disaster because you have to live in hard conversations and you have to get really good at them so that everyone's not mad after the hard conversation. Like the difference between, I think, being a project manager, which is someone that facilitates a project and a project influencer, which is someone that's leading a project is not that big of a gap, but it is a distinctive pivot that changes the dynamic of the whole project. You know, and I just think there are fundamental things that could change generally in the building industry. Like there are just fundamental things that people could do and, and at least work to get better at that will change everyone's experience, like clients themselves, their subs, their vendors, you know, it just kind of improves everything. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like that. And you know, the, the being timely with all these decisions and, and hard conversations is super important too, because you can get dragged down by, there is that emotional aspect and you have to figure out a way to, to, to deliver the medicine, to give the medicine. And it's hard sometimes. And that, that, um, that kind of working intentionally on your conversations before meetings, practicing that makes all this management easier because you've practiced saying it, you've been through it. Now, you know who to, how to say it when the time comes and it just comes with experience and practice though. You have to put the, you have to put the effort in, which at yeah. the beginning adds, adds time to your schedule, but it sure makes things easier later. Yeah. And, and you got to get comfortable with it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that's the that's, most important thing is learn how to manage it and learn how to manage emotions in a hard conversation, you know, and learn how to facilitate and, and come out productive, uh, you know, and a lot of that, I think, you know, there is a there is a, a dynamic where a lot of people like to hide behind email and have hard conversations in email. And for me, it's like pick up that phone. Uh, or schedule a meeting and do it in person, your life will be so much easier, you know? And if you're writing an email and, you know, nobody can hear a tone in an email. And so mm -hmm. you don't know, first of all, you don't know how someone is exactly saying something. And when you read it, it could come out completely in a way that you didn't mean to sound or that someone else didn't mean to sound, but also you, you give up control. You can control what you email somebody, but you can't control what they email you back. And that lives forever. Like if mm -hmm. you ever have to file a lien and go to and go to litigation, like it lives on forever. And there's nothing more disarming than having an independent neutral party read an email string. Oh, you know, that sounds like a nightmare. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a, text is dangerous. Yeah. No, no FaceTime is dangerous. You have to actually, you have to put a lot of FaceTime into this too, which is yeah. another time suck. It's a lot of energy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and of course more, you know, more listening, less talking, you know, a lot of times people just want to be heard. 
Yes. They love to talk about themselves. Yeah. Less talk. Let say less. Get right. more out of the conversation. That's right. Uh, and summarize and the conversation and writing afterwards. Mm, you know, always. Yeah. Email is yeah. documentation, not yeah. communication. Have that yeah. call. Have the call. Have the meeting. Send the email. This is what we talked about today. You know, and send it out there so you can reference it later. It's not to trap anybody. But it is designed to take all the tone out of anything that happened, you know, and project a level of professionalism and try and get everybody from here to here. You know, we want everybody right here all the time. Can you summarize this conversation when we're done and send me an email? So for the yeah, show notes? I will I'll be like, hey, Mike, this is what we talked about today. <laughs> These are the Thank action you. items. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your candor. Really appreciate yeah. it. Here's the things you need to work on. Um, <laughs> uh, what would you say is your greatest achievement? Hmm. What is my greatest achievement? That's a good question. I feel like I'm still achieving as we speak. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good mindset. Yeah. I think my greatest achievement was taking the emotion out of my own business finances for myself. I think it was, I always had a real strong personal attachment to money um, for various reasons um, early in my adult life. And I think when I started to look at the finances of my company as numbers on paper, instead of like things that were real <laughs> in the world, I was able to take my company to a different level and take the risks that I needed to take um, and make the decisions that I needed to make to make a difference, you know, and really start operating at a higher level. Um, and I think that was, that was a real, it was a real game changer. I don't think I would be where I am today if I was constantly looking at the bank account, like, as my personal bank account. <laughs> and that is like the business. There's a lot of factors in this business where you have, you have to strategically remove your emotion from it. Cause we're so tied. What is your greatest challenge as you're approaching the 10 year mark in leadership of the company? I think my greatest challenge is staying positive project to project. You know, I feel like yeah. um, we focus so much on how to overcome things in the work that we do. Um, and there's so much conflict in what we do. And there is a lot of reward. Um, and the work we do is really tangible. And that's always what kept me going. You know, that at the end of each year, I could always look back and say, this is what we did this year. You know, this is what we made happen. And that's still happening. Um, but I think my biggest challenge is being able to manage what we do and manage all the, the hard things about what we do and still maintaining the perspective that the juice is, that the juice is worth the squeeze, mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, and I know that it is like in my heart, you know, I know that it is, but I would say our, the biggest challenge is really streamlining what we're doing, um, staffing appropriately and scaling appropriately. Uh, you know, we were in a position last year where we were just scaling too fast, you know, and I had to back us up and be like, we're going to, we're going to fall right on our face, <laughs> you know, if we do this and step back and be like, what is it that we want to do? You know, like I didn't start the company because I wanted to make all this money. I started the company because I wanted to be happier, you know? And so I think, I think my upcoming challenge in the next decade is to focus on what makes me happy in the company realistically, you know, and, and, and make sure that we're heading in that direction. How are you doing on time? We're coming up on an hour and a half. I'm okay. Yeah. I, what I you have a fair amount of stuff. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Okay. Um, I also noticed that you're an advocate for normalizing mental health. And I wanted to bring this up because I think it's something that's super important that we normalize in construction. Um, how or why? Why are you an advocate? I mean, construction is so hard. <laughs> it's so, it's so emotional. And I think the better builder you are, the more detailed you are, uh, but the more OCD you get. And it's like the more successful you get, the more anxiety you get and the more stress you get. Um, because it's like you're getting better because you know more. And most of what you know is what could happen. And so, you know, it's like you're not necessarily you're getting. Yes, you're getting better in some ways where it's like, yes, we do know how to do that. We do. We can make that more efficient. We can, you know, um, we've seen that before. And so we can do it better next time. But a lot of it is also like this is what we've seen could happen. And we don't want that to happen again. And I think that everyone takes their job very seriously in construction from the owner of the company to the bookkeeper, to the foreman, um, to the project managers. And it's very, very easy to get burned out. And I think it's also very, very easy to get depressed and just feel like it's never going to be good enough. I almost feel like construction is one of those trades where there's just always room to improve. Like there never comes that point where you're like, I've made it. It's like there's always that next project that throws you for a loop, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, like, how do we do this? <laughs> you know, or like, yeah, how are you accomplish your last project? Yeah. 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 And I do feel like you're we're always kind of in this um, paradox, right, where it's like, oh, yeah, we're super busy and we're working on awesome projects. And at the same time, we are super stressed and anxious. Uh, about what's happening, you know, but mm -hmm. if we're not working on super awesome projects and we're not busy, then we're super stressed and have anxiety because we need work, you know? And so I think that, um, you know, there may be some builders out there who, who have cracked the code, but for the most part, I think that construction is an industry where you have to have a high level of, um, empath, as you said, and you have to also be a sociopath. Like you have to be an empath and a sociopath at the same time in order to survive. And it's not normal. You know, engineers mm. can be engineers. Doctors can be doctors. You know, teachers, we expect to be empaths, you know. Um, 
but there are very few industries, I think, where you have to be both at, at extremes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, and we just, I just mentioned when you talked about removing emotion from the money and I said, well, yeah, we're removing it from, we actually physically are like mentally extracting emotion from things we normally wouldn't have to. Right. Right. But our career, our careers force it. It's interesting. What do you do to uh, be sure that your that your employees and your staff are okay? So, um, you know, I would say from a, a a daily standpoint, you know, we're we're a pretty small company. Um, I make sure that there's a daily interaction between everybody on the team that no one's working in a silo. Um, I have a weekly construction meeting with the entire team, you know, every Friday. I just want to see everybody's faces and see everybody interact and check in and see how people are doing. Um, not that I'm like, oh, how are you feeling today? But just observing, you know, how people are talking or it's usually pretty obvious. Uh, and then I give everybody six weeks of paid vacation from day one in my company. So you know, three weeks of that is mandatory. Um, I call that project shutdown. That's when the when the entire office shuts down. Um, and that's a total of three weeks per year. And then the other three weeks are at large. Uh, and I require that they take it. Mm -hmm. um, you Fantastic. know, for me. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like, I want everybody on point. And I want everybody taking ownership of their projects and what they have to do. Um, but I don't want them burned out. And for me, it's like, hey, once a quarter you leave for a week, you come back fresh and that's better for everybody. Like you just need to get your mind off of it because most of the time I know when I go on vacation, things that were a huge deal before I left mentally, when I come back are not. It's like, yeah, mm -hmm. so that's a that's a you problem. <laughs> it's not a me problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I focused on me for the last week, you know, like this is not a big deal. We can handle this, you know? And um, so, yeah, those are just a few things to try and keep everybody I think, healthy. I think it's, there's so much value in completely stepping away from stuff and coming back and you just, you're clicking right along. Yeah. When you take those breaks, they're, they're very important. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, and I don't babysit my staff either. You know, I, I always tell my staff, like, listen, I hired an adult. That's what I'm assuming. You're not clocking in. You're not clocking out. This is your annual salary. If you finish early one day, I don't care. But if you have to work 70 hours one week during punch list or something, I'm not going to say thank you. I appreciate it, you know, but I also expect it. But I would say, you know, it's probably pretty often that people who work for me aren't working 40 hours a week, every week consistently, but they may work a 70 hour week every now and again. But my thinking is like, hey, if you're having a bad day, you wanna take an afternoon off. I'm not gonna call you and see where you're at. As long as your work is getting done, I don't care how long it takes you to do it. If you can do your job in 25 hours a week, I mean, more power to you, but your job better be done. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm not singing Kumbaya over here, but I don't confuse efforts with results. If you're producing results, then however much effort you put into doing it is, is up to you, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think that in particular is, is a rub. Mm -hmm. 
You know, you're kind of a hotshot builder these days, but but it in the wasn't mirror always, anyway. Yes. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't always that easy. Um, a couple years in, five years into the business, you had some realizations. Um, and it's something that I read about somewhere or, or saw. I don't know. I mean, it was on the website. Um, it's something that really resonated with me is you were taking jobs busier than ever, but at the end of the year, the margin didn't reflect the effort. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, that's super easy to do, right? Um, we were running around like crazy working. I mean, I would say, you know, between business development and the managing of the projects or whatever, you know, there just weren't enough hours in the day to really focus on everything. And so what happens? You become jack of all trades, master of none. And you just start letting things go. And and by letting things go, I'm meaning like, oh, we made a mistake on that. We'll just eat that cost or we'll just do that. Or let's just push forward. Let's spend the money to push forward at all cost, you know, because we have to finish this project because we have to start another one. We're going to find ourselves in a tight spot. I wasn't hiring staff. You know, I, I was treating um, employee salaries. I was I was deducting employee salaries from our profit margin and not from our revenue, um, mm. which was a huge mistake and just coming from naivety. And uh, at the end of the year, the numbers just didn't show, the profit didn't show how hard we were working. And it was devastating, you know, like to have worked 70, 80 hours all year long to have all that revenue. And it's like, you know, everyone's looking at you like, oh man, like, you guys are doing great. You're doing huge projects, blah, blah, blah. And like, I look at the number and I'm like, I should have never quit my corporate job. Mm. <laughs> I would have had an IRA. Somebody else would be making <clears throat> decisions, you know, like these are the things that run through my head. And sure. I was like, you know, and so I just kind of sat back and I was like, what do I do? Like, is this, is this how it is? Like, is this just how construction is? Is this just how it goes? This is just what people do. You know, and then I remember I was like sitting in my car and I was like, no, 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 this is not how it's going to go. This is not how we're going to do business. This is not this business is not going to run me. I'm going to run this business. Mm -hmm. And um, I did the opposite of what the next year I did the opposite of what I was doing previously, which is I was saying no way more than I was saying yes. Mm -hmm. Um, because, and I learned that year, two things. Number one, if you start with a small project and you spend a lot of time on it and your clients trust you, small projects turn into big projects. Number one, and it's a lot easier to grow an existing project than it is to get a new one. Um, and the other thing I learned is that my time is not free. And every time I'm saying yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. So I became really focused on what I was saying yes to. And what I found is when I said no to things, people suddenly started respecting my time, you know, and the whole dynamic changed, you know, and when I took control and I said, okay, this is what we're doing. 
we're not going to be taking on, uh, you know, I don't want to be a 50 person firm taking on projects just so I can feed the beast. We're going to take on projects where we can make money and we're going to take on projects where we can focus on them. And if that means that we take a hit on revenue, um, so be it. And if it means that we take a hit on profit, that's fine as long as we have more time and mental energy to live life, you know, and that's really, that was a game changer for me. And it's, it's the mantra we've followed, um, since and it's changed everything. And then all of a sudden this seriousness and this, uh, lack of desperation for the next job, uh, changed our brand. It changed how people saw us and how we were presenting ourselves. And suddenly clients and architects were like, that was really the game changer for us where um, the brand became Integro is Integro, right? Like all of a sudden we weren't competing. All of a sudden it was like, well, if you want Integro to do your job, Integro is Integro, you know? And that didn't necessarily mean that we were more expensive. It was kind of like what was coming out was like, we're serious. Mm -hmm. We're a serious builder. Absolutely. And and you, you attract what you put out. Yeah. There's so much to that. My, my year 2018 was my 2016 where I, where I, at the end of the year, I was like, what? I worked so hard. I ran my crew so hard. I worked them. I worked all my stuff so hard. And there was a lot of, I did let a lot of things go though. I I flailed on communication a lot because I was too busy. Yeah. But, and it is, and I mean, and you just nickel, you nickel and dime yourself to death, you know, and, um, you know, and then it's like, okay, you're really busy. And so business starts slowing down. So, you know, you're throwing money at marketing or you're throwing money at, you know, whatever. And it's like, you have, you have to be smart, you know, um, and you do have to put yourself in a position to be able to step back and make good decisions. Mm hmm you know, and, and for me that, that meant hiring staff, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, before you're saying, uh, never really felt like you arrived, but after that year and once you're into 2019 and it was Integro, it wasn't just another construction company. They came to you. Didn't you feel a bit more like you'd arrived? Because I feel like it was that way for me in, in a lot of ways. And, I wasn't arguing about the bottom line anymore. It was just like, this is what it costs you guys. Like it's, if you want it to cost more, it can, we can add, you know, but this is what, for what you're talking about, this is what it's going to cost. And there wasn't really an argument anymore. It's just, right. Let's go, let's do it. Yeah. I feel like the seriousness, um, changed a lot. And, um, I think, I think whenever you grow as a leader, people respond to you differently you know, and when people feel like you're learning or you're up and coming, um, or that you aren't really standing for anything, you know, well, then they're going to try anything on you, you know, in order to, to get their, their budget down because everything in our industry is money. Um, and I think, I mean, part, part of, part of arriving, you know, and, and part of, of being a leader is not taking anyone's crap, you know, 
And the thing is, is like people love the abuse. <laughs> it's the human condition, you know. Uh, if you're saying yes and you're saying, oh, this and that and this and this, there there is a lack of trust that happens because now when I talk to clients in the beginning, I'm not selling what I'm doing. I'm coming to their project and I'm saying, so I'm concerned about this staircase. Let's talk about it. You know, um, what about this and that and this? Like, have you considered this? And I feel like when you're serious about someone's project, you know, that's ultimately what they want. People are spending money, you know, and they want to feel mm -hmm. comfortable. And it's like, do you want, does it make you feel more comfortable to have someone selling you something? Or does it make you feel more comfortable talking to someone who is serious? <laughs> You know, someone who's maybe not telling you what you want to hear, but what does that communicate to you? What's what's my incentive to tell you something you don't want to hear? It's not to sell you on a project. It's because I'm concerned, you know, about my ability to deliver. Mm -hmm. I like you know? it. Yeah, absolutely. That is you keeping it real from the get go. They You earn respect instantly when you start talking about the little details of the project. Yeah. And see I think something. you're looking ahead you're because, because clients can't see the way we can see, like they just don't visualize it. Right. I always say like clients are 1D, architects are mm. 2D, mm. builders are 3D. I like and it. you need everybody. <laughs> you need everybody. You know, everybody One, serves a role. 1D is kind of a low blow, but I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> They're just looking at Instagram. They're just looking at Pinterest. They're sending uh, photos. <laughs> um, okay, let's get into some rapid fire. I will try to blow through these really fast. I know it is Monday, so you probably have something else to do besides me on this podcast. Okay, what was the weirdest childhood expectation you were given? Table manners. I actually did not invite friends over to dinner because of the manners. We had to exercise at the dinner table. <laughs> but funny. I could eat at Buckingham Palace and not be afraid today, but table manners. You got you got your manners down. That was a yeah. big one for me. If I didn't pass the salt with the pepper, I could be sent away from the table. Without dinner. Yeah. Uh, what book are you reading? Um, I just finished a historical novel about, um, of course, I can't remember. Oh, uh, Two Boys for Sale. It was called. Mm. It was a historical novel about um, during the Great Depression, um, people who sold their children. Like, oh. and um, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like a sex trafficking or anything, but it was, it was right. a story about a photo that ended up in, um, I think it was like the Daily Herald. And kind of like the backstory about like how that came and then like what was going on at the time. So I generally like to read fiction as an escape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I like I'm trying to get back into some fiction, but I'm mm -hmm. reading Kitchen Confidential right now. Oh, and, how is it? And, oh, so have you, you haven't read it? I, no, I, read, I, read I love it right Anthony the, Bourdain. Yeah, I I. It's, it's going to sound like I've been reading this pod, this this book for like a year because I've recorded all the podcasts in the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's in my pile of books that I'm reading, actually. But I first read it in 2003 when it came out. And I was a I was a line cook. So 
you know, that dude's all of our heroes. Right. Yeah. Um, I also am industry. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. So you know how to get out of the way and you know who's behind you. And you know, when someone says behind, you trust them for the rest of your life. Right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should start doing that to my, to my guys. Be like, hands. Someone help me. <laughs> Absolutely. From the office. Or like hands. in a meeting. Yeah. Like in a meeting oh, with yeah. an architect, like with a bad client, you'd be like, hands and the architect like jumps in. <laughs> yeah. Start adding some eccentricities now. Go for it. Hands. <laughs> That'll be your street name. <laughs> um, why do skill trades matter? Well, if you want something to be beautiful, you need a skilled trade. What do you value most? Loyalty. Who's your mentor? I would say my biggest mentor is, uh, was my old boss from my corporate job. Taught me oh. almost everything I know. Mm. I love that uh, a lot of us who came into construction later bring all this experience from previous jobs that really applies because it's all dealing with humans. Yeah. I day. think, yeah, he really taught me. Um, I mean, fundamentally, he taught me uh, about documentation and communicating professionally um, and all those little details that go into managing people. Uh, but then I think he also really taught me how to maintain my own perspective, um, you know, and not get sucked into drama mm -hmm. ever, you know, at, and uh, I think if I hadn't learned that early on in my career, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be as successful today. I mean, I don't know if I would have made it in construction at all. We are a definitely a mixed bag of human beings, us builders. Yeah. Um, what What's your favorite tool? My spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I love to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Shovel it in. Let's go. More. Um, what's the most useful tool? Definitely the computer. The where have you been on my life tool? Um, the hand measuring tape that vendors give you as giveaways. That you can keep with you everywhere. What, what is the best thing to eat if we're in Chi-Town? The best thing to eat in Chi-Town? Yeah. Oh, God, there's so much to eat in Chi-Town. Um, I would say some of the best Latino food you can get anywhere. That's kind of getting global now. It is. It's it's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm down. Um, best job site jams. Best job site jam, is that what you said? Yep. Ah, I would say dancing Zorba. Into this, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what that is. 
<laughs> you should uh, look into it after you get off. Like, yeah, I, I will do it. You'll be like, well, she it'll is be such a freak. It'll be the theme in, in our collaborative reel on Instagram. <laughs> I'll put it in the bottom there. Um, okay. So every show I have a guest ask a question of the last guest. So my last guest asks, what piece of advice have you held on to? What's one of the early pieces of advice you got that you've held on to throughout your life? That's a good question. What's one piece of advice that I've held on to through my career? I think the piece of advice, yeah, for sure, is um, don't let what you do change who you are. I think that um, it's really tempting, especially in construction, to um, be greedy where you can or to be disingenuous where you can. Um, you find yourself in a lot of situations, you know, where you can make a little more money, where you probably shouldn't be making a little more money, but no one would ever know the difference. And I, I really have felt like I felt I have a strong philosophy, actually, that when you're greedy, you pay twice eventually, somehow, somewhere. And um, I've always tried to hold myself with integrity because I hold other people to a high standard of integrity and I expect everybody to operate, um, honestly and as transparently as they can within reason. Uh, and I have always tried to fly straight and I feel like that is always, it's always served us. And especially where the market has gone up and down and up and down. And we've always been very consistent. It's like, we might've been able to make a lot more money in 2020 and 2021, but we just kept our markups the same, you know, and we just kept doing everything the same, mm -hmm. you know, um, and surviving. And I, I think, I think it's important, you know, and you start playing games and you start playing, you know, the behind the scenes and the dark shadow games, you know, for an extra bit of money here and there, and you'll start to lose eventually. I would just, yeah, I'd add on there that like, it's hard enough to keep track and you're watching the money go out. You're watching the money come in. And then if you're cooking, the, if you're cooking the book somehow, if you're telling somebody something else, you're going to get caught. Yeah. You're, it's so, something's not going to work right. So yeah. yeah. Um, what question would you ask another builder who comes on this podcast? When was a time where you suddenly felt that you were a leader? I like that. A lot of us don't come into this as natural born leaders. Yeah. Hmm. I remember early on my first year in business, um, we had a um, HGTV house hunters renovation clients had brought in house hunters renovation um, just to keep things interesting for me, I'm sure. And um, so house hunter, you know, so we had this project, it was, and I was like, okay, this will be great. Like, this will be like a great, we're going to get all this PR and whatever from, from being on HGTV. And I um, met a, uh, a 
like a marketing person um, through networking or whatever. And we were at an event and I ran into her and she said, she's like, Allie, if you don't hire a marketing company, if you don't hire a PR company to like get your website and get all your Google analytics and like you don't start pumping out like blog posts and all this, she's like, you're not going to gain any traction from HGTV because people are not going to put in Integro Builders, Allison Case or Allison Anderson. It's like they're going to put in Integ Chai. They're going to put in Allison Integrity. They're going to put in Integra. They're going to put, you know, she's like, this is how people search. And she's like, and if they don't find you right away, they're going to stop. No one's going to look for you. So you have to already be on the first page of Google when this hits. And I was like, okay. And she's, and I, and I was like, and how much is that? And she's like, oh, it's about 2,500 a month. And I was like, that's a lot of money. I mean, it might as well have been a million dollars to me, you know? Right. And I was like, Oh my God. And so I was like, I crunched the numbers and I was like, okay, if I get one more project, then we can swing this and then I can make like 30 grand this year and I should be able to survive, you know? And anyway, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And of course the fear is like, I'm going to spend 30 grand <laughs> and like, it's, it's not even going to matter. Right. And when HGTV hit, it was like a boon, like the website blew up. Chicago Tribune reached out to me. Um, mm. Forbes reached out to me. Like I, it was like this huge PR thing. And I think for me, that was when I felt like a CEO. Like I made a decision mm. that I was uncomfortable with because I believed that that decision was going to be a game changer for my company, and it was. You know, that was fantastic. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, we, we we tell our clients this is how much it's going to cost, but when we get a bill, we're like, we're all inherently cheap as contractors. We're like, what? <laughs> what? How much? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Or have you ever like done anything on your own house and you're like, this sucks. Like, <laughs> cheap. I, ha I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, I haven't worked on my house in a while. <laughs> well, I'm There's planning for mine right now, and I'm like, oh my god, this is expensive. Like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Uh, is there anyone you want to give a shout out to today? Um, I would like to give my girl, Morgan, Morgan Molitor, a shout out from uh, construction to style up in Minnesota. Mm. She's the best. I don't know if you've met her before, but I saw that you guys did a live the other day. Yeah. I, I, so I noted her because of you and now. Yeah, I'll be in touch. She's, you know, she's the best of people. She's like one of the most successful and yet humble people I've mm. ever met. But I would just say like, you know, her passion is only exceeded by her kindness. I just think she's she's the greatest. And she's got such a great story, you know. Mm. And she always like talks to me and she's always like, oh, Allie, like you're so awesome, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're way more successful than I am. <laughs> Morgan, <laughs> I'm just over here drinking and building and you're over there doing more than that with like your kids and your conferences and your huge national network and recognition, you know? Yeah, there's some real, there's some amazing people out there in terms of energy and what they encompass. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a lot out there that are really like self-promoting and I understand, I get it, you know, and um, there's nothing really wrong with it, but um, 
there are some people that are just working really hard, you know, to, to make a name for themselves or, or to tout what they're doing. And I always am immediately drawn to people who are not people, you know, who are really running a strong game, you know, in, in whatever it is they're doing. And yet they're just people, you know, I think it takes a strong, yeah, it takes a strong sense of character to be like that. Mm -hmm. I would like to be like that, but you know, let me know how I am in 10 years when I'm super wealthy, figured it out. We'll, we'll, (laughs) we'll have you back in 10 years. This damn is still rolling. Be like, Allie, are you rich? (laughs) If you're not rich, you can't be on. (laughs) Um, Well, Allison Anderson, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. This was great. You are, you're an excellent interviewer. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for spending two hours with me on a Monday. Oh, you know, that's your fault because I just felt like I was sitting talking to a friend.